0: Well, good morning and welcome to Christian Life Academy. Uh, we are working our way through the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession, which is our doctrinal statement of faith. We have landed in Chapter 2, uh, which is of God and the Holy Trinity. And if you don't have an outline, by the way, and I, don't, I think most people got one, but there are some more right here in the center table if you didn't get an outline yet um, to cover the chapter. And we have uh, just really begun. Last week was the first week, and we covered... Uh, The first couple of lines of paragraph one. So if you have your book, um, don't have it on the screen today, but if you have your book, you can open up your book to to chapter two, because I'm going to start by reading again paragraph one, um, because of course we're working our way through that. And there is, it is uh, very packed with statements that uh, describe God. And so we're kind of unpacking them as we go, but it's kind of good to remember Uh, What that entirety um, of a statement looks like. So, paragraph one is The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of Himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but Himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body parts, without body parts or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will. For his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, And withal, most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Okay, so uh, we began uh, working through um, each of these little statements that are in there. And uh, essentially, the uh, first couple, those are pretty basic. We talked about kind of his essence, so to speak, a little bit, and how much we don't really understand it and know it because of our uh, infinite minds and our beings themselves. Then we started working through each of these uh, statements and we ended with um, or in God is spirit and uh, just as a reminder, I only hit like one bullet or a couple of bullet points from that and this is from the phrase in paragraph one, "A most pure spirit." so uh, God is a spirit he is not does not have a body like created beings. We talked about the fact last week that uh, we see Epipomorphisms in there. We're going to talk about that more, but uh, we see these references in the scripture to uh, God almost in a bodily form, uh, his uh, sitting on the throne, his hand, uh, standing, uh, all these different things we see references to, um, but that is for our understanding of it. It is uh, not uh, what he is. Uh, so when you think of God sitting on a throne, um, it Will be for our understanding of him sitting on a throne, not because he is literally sitting on a throne, because his body is not his being is not contained within a body. God is literally not sitting on a throne and only in that location. Does that make sense? That helps a little bit to get the concept here because you say, well, John sees God sitting on the throne. you remember this? Well, that is for, God, for John to be able to describe it to us. Because you remember there are multiple places in Scripture where we see these references that no one can look upon God, right? You remember the covenants he's made through the Old Testament, these different places where no one can actually look on God. So all of a sudden, was John able to look at God? No, he wasn't. This was a vision that he was having so that he could actually describe to us the, the situation, Does anyone believe that we completely comprehend exactly what heaven looked like based on John's writings and revelation? No, there's no way. We've got a glimpse, right? we just got a glimmer of what it will be like. And a lot of times that raises questions in our minds, right? Well, what about this? What about that? Legitimately so, right? Uh, However, this is what we have to default to every time. We don't need to know we don't need to know. Are you with me on this? If God doesn't tell us in his word, we don't need to know. Easy to focus on the wrong things. Very easy. And this is a big problem for commentators. Big problem for commentators. Commentators will often ascribe all kinds of stuff in their commentary because they're trying to uh, answer questions and thoughts that people have. They're adding to the scripture. Now, if they say, It could be this or it could be that. Good, right? Legitimate. It could be that they thought this. It could be that they thought that. It could be that this was a perspective. But if God's word doesn't tell us, we don't know. Why was Bathsheba taking the bath on her roof that night? I've heard commentary saying, well, she clearly was trying to tempt somebody. (laughs) No. How do we know that? We don't know that. God's word doesn't say that. Now, the question is, why are you spending time going down that path anyway? God's word doesn't tell us what her motivation was. It doesn't tell us. You know what that means? That's not the point. That's not the focus. When we start adding all these things about supposing this happened, or supposing they thought this, or supposing they thought that, we got to remember something. God doesn't want us to be thinking those things. He would tell us if we needed to know somebody's motivation and how they did something what they were thinking, why they were there. He would tell us if we needed to know those things. For us to take time, in particularly in the teaching of God's word, and to shift that over to suppositions about why somebody did what they did or what it looked like or what it ended up happening after what is detailed in the scripture is taking away from God's purpose. In essence, it's adding to God's word because we're starting to preach a message that is not in God's word. That's blasphemy. God's word tells us what we need to know. That's it. So don't get too caught up in commentary. The commentary needs to explain what you see. The commentary does not need to provide more information than what's in there. Does that make sense? Very easy for commentary to go beyond. You see it all the time. All the time. If God wanted us to know, he would have told us. If God wanted us to focus on that, he would have told us. We often wonder things, right? Why don't we see more about uh, the apostles' lives than what we see in the Scripture? You know why we don't? Because we don't need to know. How do I know that? Because God would have told us if we needed to know. He didn't leave this out there for us to discover it or to come up with it or to suppose and make a good guess. You understand? It's only because he wants us to focus on other things. The importance is the message it's the gospel it's not what did they eat when they were traveling around but he doesn't focus on that at all at all does he no that isn't the focus so let's be careful when we view god and we consider who god is that we don't start adding things to him. We understand that the reason some of these things are in the scripture the way they are is for us to get a picture of who God is. But we should be thinking like, I wonder if God's hands are soft or calloused. I hate to tell you, he doesn't have hands. Jesus Christ does. And are they soft or calloused? We don't know. Do we know anything about his hands? Yes. We know they have holes. We know that. That's all. That's all we know. Big hands, little hands. We don't know. We don't need to know. Does this make sense? Focus on what we need to know, and what we need to know is in God's word. So we see these references to God, and we see it like he's sheltering you under his wing, for instance, right? Scripture. Does God have a wing? No. No. It's a picture to give us an idea of what that protection looks like, right? I mean, you can't help but Like, if you think God shelters us under his wing, what do you think of? Do you think of God having huge wings, or do you think of a bird? More than likely, you think of a bird, right? What does that look like? Well, usually you can think of it like chicks, where a mother puts her wings over the chicks, to sh- chip, the chicks to shelter them, protect them, right? That's the idea. It's not, well, God is so immense. How big are his wings? It's not actually saying he has wings. Understand? Okay. <laughs> God is a spirit. So, uh, by the way, Christianity is a religion of the ear, not the eye. Hence, no graven images or visual representations of God are allowed in worship. And we did talk about that. We read that passage that talks about you can't use them in worship. And then I mentioned the last point last week was we are, con- we are to be concerned with hearing, believing, and obeying God, not visualizing him. That is not our focus. Our focus is to be hearing, believing, and obeying. It's not, you know, the way that we're going to get people to believe the gospel is by doing some beautiful paintings of Jesus that that's not it. That's not the gospel. Right? The gospel isn't paintings. Does that make sense? The gospel isn't paintings. All right. So, caught up as spirit. The only worship he accepts from humans is that offered in spirit and truth, and therefore any worship we offer him must be characterized by these two traits. So what are they? Well, these are worship must be consistent with God's being. Character and perfections, in other words, in spirit. They should match him in spirit. And worship must be regulated by God's word, or in other words, in truth. So let's look at a couple of verses about that. First of all, John 4.24, this is a footnote in the confession. And that is, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. That's John 4.24. Now here's an additional one, Deuteronomy 4, 12 through 16. And the Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire. Ye heard the voice of words, but saw no similitude, only ye heard a voice. Now what is this saying? Well, I'm going to read the rest of the passage. But what this is saying is is that you did not see God in a body. You didn't see him simulating a person. It was a voice that came out of the fire, in this case. And he declared unto you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform even ten commandments. And he wrote them upon two tables of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that ye might do them in the land whither ye go over to possess it. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves for ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female. Now Moses is actually telling Israel here but the reason God did not appear to you in bodily form is because you may make a graven image of him then. That's what he's specifically saying. He didn't appear to you in a similitude of any figure because the danger is is that you might make a graven image and worship that instead of God. Does that make sense? You might worship the graven image instead of God. So that's why he did not appear in that form. Okay, moving on. Next phrase is God is infinite. Now, in the paragraph, it says invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. So as a spirit and infinite, God is not on the same physical plane that we exist on. He is invisible to humans. Now, we touched on this a little bit last week. The concept that uh, we talked about in reference to time and uh, eternality, And the fact that God exists in a place that is beyond our comprehension is really mind-blowing to some extent when you try to grapple with getting your arms around the concept. But he is existing in a place where time does not exist, that he sees all things that have ever happened, that will ever happen in our human existence simultaneously. He sees them at the same time. So he is not like he's, he's in a linear existence where he is watching things develop. And waiting for things to happen, it is only for our reference that we see references to time. Remember, the Bible says to God, "A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day." That's not a literal like, okay, so how many years old? So the Earth has been around for six days in God's eyes, right? That would be six thousand something years. So according to the scripture, so it's not that. The idea is is that the concept of time does not exist for God. He is outside of it. Remember that the Bible begins with what phrase? What is the very beginning of Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, God. And what was the beginning? What, What beginning is it referring to? Well, you could say it's the beginning of creation. Right? You could say it's the beginning of creation. True. It's also the beginning of time. This is the beginning of time. Before this, there was no time. There was no time that existed. Very difficult for us to get our arms around that. and really, so, don't, so here's the point. How much explanation do we see in the Scripture to explain that concept to us? Practically none. Practically none. You know why? We're not going to get it. We are constricted in our minds. Because we can't think beyond time. Every thought you have is with time. You cannot relate to anything that is outside of time. Because the entire existence that you know is based on time. Everything's based on time. It doesn't matter if you're talking about the stars in the sky with the light that shines on the earth. Whether you're talking about your, your heart beating. Whether you're talking about a thought that actually comes into your head. That thought takes time. Time. And that time, by the way, is lost. Once you have the thought, that time is now gone. The sentence I just said, you can't get back. The time's gone. The time we spend here in class is gone. Can't ever get it back, can you? You can't make more time, can you? No. This is why a time machine is completely impossible. It will never happen. Why? Well, think about it. For a time machine to exist, it would actually have to travel between two points in God's existence that are the same. It's impossible for that to happen. It cannot happen. See, to God it's all simultaneously happening. And he allows no created being to travel outside of that time. None. Even the angels. We see references to heaven. Is heaven constricted by time? Hmm, some of you are thinking now. Good, I'm glad you're thinking. Is heaven constricted by time? Okay, let me clarify a little further because you may have a question about my question. Accurate, if you're thinking this. Heaven now or heaven later? I'm talking about heaven now. I'm talking about heaven since creation. Is heaven now constricted by time? Yes, absolutely it's constricted by time. Does God exist only in heaven? No, heaven is constricted by time. Think of the different references to heaven that we know of and how many times we see time referenced over and over. Think of the martyrs under the throne. What do they ask God? When will we be avenged? That's their question. They are marking time. They're wondering when this is going to happen. Think of the heavenly hosts who were waiting for Christ's birth. We see that in the scripture. They're waiting. The angels are waiting. They exist within time. The angels exist within time. They're not outside of time. Some are captured, right? We know demons. Some are enchained, are chains. Some aren't. They are being held until a time. Are you with me? Heaven is constrained by time. Is it the same speed as our time? Don't know. We don't know. Doesn't tell us. We don't have to know. But we do see time in heaven. Will there be time in the new heaven and the new earth? Hmm. Good question. We definitely see some references... The new heaven and new earth that look like our existence. But the reality is that could also just be for us to have an understanding. Right? Now, what do I mean by that? Okay, so think about this for a second. There is a tree in the center of the New Jerusalem that spans the New River Jordan. Its leaves are for what? By the way, there are 12 fruit on the tree, 12 different fruit on this tree, but its leaves are for the healing of the nations. So, let me ask you a question, just in your finite mind Does healing happen instantaneously, or is healing, ing, a process? Right? In other words, if it said the leaves healed the nations, healed the nations. What does that mean? It doesn't mean ongoing. It means done. Healing is a process. That indicates time. Now, is that just so that we understand the concept? I mean, frankly, we don't even understand that statement, do we? Like, it's the healing of the nations. Well, this is only the believers, God's family, that exists. Will there still be nations? What does it mean? We don't need to know. How do we know we don't need to know? Not defined in Scripture. Anything we assume would be a supposition that we're adding to Scripture. Right? Even the idea that it says the healing of the nations, which does seem to indicate the passage of some kind of time, may just be for our understanding. It may not be any time. We know that the cycle which we regulate time is regulated for us Does not exist. There is no sun. There is no night and day. That doesn't exist. Now, will there be the earth, the new heaven and the new earth rotating around the sun? We don't know. We don't know that. Will there be a universe? We don't know that. We don't know. I don't know why there would be. Honestly. I don't know why there would be. I mean, what would be the point? Would you want to leave Jesus Christ's presence to go to some other place in the universe? Doesn't seem good. Well, how do we figure this out? You don't. That's what I'm trying to say this morning. You don't figure this out. This is not what God has told us. We have to take what he's told us in his word, if it's clear, if it's obvious, if it's explained in another passage, now we know what it means. If it's not there, we could just think it may mean this, but be a little uncertain. Say, well, yeah, but doesn't John MacArthur know what that means? (laughs) Doesn't Alistair Begg know what that means? Did Spurgeon know what that meant? Did Calvin know what that meant? No, they didn't. No, they don't. How do we know? Because... Everything is in God's word, and that's all we have. They can say that it appears that this believes this, it appears this means this, but they don't know. John MacArthur has a very convincing message on how the Muslims' Mahdi, their Messiah, is the Antichrist in the scripture. Very convincing. Like, it matches up. The Quran with the Bible matches up. Does he know that that's the case? No. Why? Because the Bible doesn't say that's who it is. Describes him, right? Don't forget, at the writing of this confession, the belief was that the Pope was the Antichrist. Which Pope? Well, that's a good question, because there were successive Popes, right? So, let's not spend all our time worrying about how we add on a Scripture, let's spend our time worrying about what the Scripture actually says. And remember that the focus is what the Scripture says, not in us getting a bigger picture of what's happening. That is not it. If we needed a bigger picture, God tells us we need a big. picture. And sometimes He does, does He not? Sometimes do we not see detailed accounts of something that happens? Other times we don't. We don't see that. Right? Look, What did Lot's wife think when she turned around and looked at the brimstone and fire falling from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah? What was she thinking? We don't know. You know how many times I've heard pastors preach that that's because she longed to return? The Bible does not say that, it doesn't say it. You know what that means? We don't know. We could say it may be because she longed to return. Could be. It may be that she forgot God said, no, don't look. Maybe. It could be she wanted to see God's wrath because she was disgusted with the city and wanted to be gone. Couldn't it? Does God ever actually strike somebody dead who was doing something that they thought was okay? Okay but God said no. Hmm? Who who can you think of specifically? A real easy example, two guys. What? The priests. What's the names? Nadab and Abihu. That's right. Aaron's sons. Aaron's sons. Why were they struck down and killed on the spot? Because strange fire. It's incense. They presented incense that God did not specify in worship. Now, what was their motivation? We don't know. We don't know. See, this is it, right? Look, do you think that it was honestly that they wanted to disobey God? Probably not. But it might have been. You think they were like, look, this isn't going to cause it. We'll do what we want. That could have been it. Or could it have been, this will even make it better? It could have been. Right? We don't know. God's word doesn't tell us what their motivation was. It just tells us that they disobeyed him and they were punished as a result. Right? Lot's wife disobeyed God and she was punished as a result. Right? This is what we see. We can't ascribe motivations. And man, is it easy, isn't it? It's really easy. God as a spirit, God outside of time, God infinite, God everywhere, very hard for us to grasp. So let's take what he says as what he says and not try to add to that. Now we said on here already, he exists on a different plane. This is my last point here. And is invisible to humans. That goes pretty it's pretty obvious, right? Obviously we see many times in scripture where God reveals himself in some way, right? Was the person who actually met with Abraham Christ in a pre-incarnation form? Might have been. Kind of seems like it, kind of almost hinted at it, but we don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. What did it look like in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when a fourth person appeared? Was that Jesus Christ in bodily form? Interestingly, you'll hear pastors all the time say that that's who it was. But the Bible doesn't say that's who it was. We don't know that. Could it have been an angel? It certainly could have been. Could it have been anyone? Yeah. How far you want to go down that path? Could it have been Abraham? Moses? Elijah? Not even there yet? We don't know. You know what that means? We don't need to know. We don't need to know. Is invisible to us, but we also know that at least through his spirit, he is always here. He sees all, he's able to observe. But that does not mean, by the way, like a pantheistic belief that God is in all of us and in everything. Now, you hear this all the time in popular culture today. It is absolutely a lie. It's pantheistic. It's actually trying to turn God into an element of nature instead of saying he is above and beyond nature. God is not in everything. That's blasphemy. He is not in everything. He's not in the wood. He's not in the concrete. He's not in the carpet. He's not in the brick. He's not in the paint. He's not in the podium. He is not. Yet, he exists everywhere simultaneously. You see the difference? Because if we say he's in the brick and he's in the table and he's in the wood and he's in the wind and he's in the fire and he's in the water and all these things, what we're saying is he is actually elemental. He is made of elements of creation. That's a problem. He's beyond that. Beyond that. He is spirit. We cannot relate to that. Now, you say, I've always been a little confused on this whole other plane thing. First of all, it's P-L-A-N-E, plane. And this plane means just a place of existence. Does that make sense? It's a place of existence. So uh, we exist here in a physical plane, right? We're here right now. But is there another plane that exists outside of our plane that is not what we see? Well, yes, we know there is. How do we know this? Well, we see numerous references in Scripture to angels being among us, acting among us. Well, we can't see them. Has there been some who have their, however God did it, whether it was their eyes, whether it was their brain, whatever it was, where he temporarily allows a crossing over of our physical plane into this other plane where angels exist. There's numerous occasions of that in the scripture, right? Where men see angels, right? Many times. Do we see them all the time? No. In fact, even in the New Testament, which is probably the greatest uh, references to angelic beings, uh, we don't ever hear of them being physically seen by men at the time. Now, what are we talking about? We're talking about demons in that case, right? Many instances of Christ commanding a demon to come out of someone, or then of the apostles commanding demons to come out of people, right? And we never see a reference to someone actually seeing the demon leave or of them even going into something else, like the one that goes into the pigs, right? We never see a reference in Scripture to that demon becoming visible. Are you with me on this? Just that it left, But we see other places where they come. We see references to the idea that when you entertain a stranger, it could be an angel. Scripture tells us this. I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that. I have. Where we interacted with somebody who was key to a situation, and then they were never there anymore. How did that happen? Did God just use somebody that way? Or was that an angel? I don't know. I don't need to know. But there is another plane. The angels are around us. They're among us. The demons are around. But we don't see them. Likewise, yeah, that's the same plane outside the door. At any rate, so... we know also that heaven exists in another plane that we can't see. How do we know this? Because we've had several instances where men's eyes were opened so that they could see into the other plane. In other words, think about, so specifically, think about a few different areas where this, you've seen this in Scripture. One obvious one would be Stephen. Remember Stephen, as he preaches the gospel and they begin stoning him? Actually, right before they begin stoning him, that plane, his vision into that plane is opened. And he sees God sitting on the throne. That's the description. He's stoned to death. How about Ezekiel? Ezekiel sees visions in heaven that we don't see. How about Jacob? sees so a ladder. Remember this? We see a number of occasions where men actually have a glimpse for some reason, whatever the special occasion is that God wants them to see something beyond our physical plane. He allows them to see beyond our physical plane and then that vision ceases. Now we don't we can't answer the question about. How often does that happen, and for who does it happen? We don't know that. We know that the donkey that was carrying Balaam turned off the road, turned to one way, and Balaam hit him. Why did the donkey turn? Because the donkey saw an angel blocking the way. So the donkey turned. Balaam hit him. The donkey turned around and said, why did you hit me? Quite an experience. <laughs> but Balaam didn't see the angel, right? The donkey saw the angel. Balaam didn't see the angel. The angel was on a different plane of existence than he, Balaam, was allowed to see. Now, does that mean that donkeys always see angels? Or does that mean it was a special occasion? We don't know. We don't know. Does it matter? Not really. How do we know it doesn't matter? Because it's not in what? Scripture, the Bible. God's word. He doesn't say, doesn't tell us. So we don't need to know. All right. God does reveal Himself in a limited way, in which our human our limited human capacities can comprehend his glory. We talked about that already. So my own thunder there. The sways of the flesh and sin are non existent in God. They have no part of his perfection and being. So when we talk about this little phrase here, it doesn't have a body, parts, or passions. Passions is specifically what we're talking about, the sways of the flesh and sin. God does not have that. He is righteous and holy. He does not have the same passions that we do and the temptations to sin. He doesn't have that. He has neither beginning or end. He is immortal. We've already touched on this. True mortal, immortality is no beginning and no end. Now, you can say that our souls are now, uh, will be immortal. Many will say that. We shed this mortal flesh. There's some hymns talking about that, right? We shed our mortal flesh. And then what? our soul now exists in immortality, which is true. The souls will never end. They will exist always, from now on. Now, I'm saying from now on, but that's almost that's just so you understand it, and we understand it, but there may not be time. So it may not be like from now on. It may just be there's no time, right? So when you read, sing a hymn that says 10,000 years and we just get started, we don't know that there actually be one year. There may be no years. It's just an existence. That's it. <laughs> Let's not go down that path too far, because that's a difficult concept, time. But the point here is specifically that God does not have a beginning or end. We've talked about this before. He is immortal. God's dwelling is in a light that man cannot approach, that has not been seen or cannot be seen by us in our physical bodies. We cannot bear it. And we see this in numerous scriptures. I'm going to read a few right now. First of all, 1 Timothy 1.17, Now the king unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Deuteronomy four. 15 and 16, Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for ye saw no manner, this is the verse I read a little bit ago, of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female. And then 1 Timothy six sixteen, Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen, nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. So when John sees, this clearly says that when John sees the vision of heaven and God sitting on the throne, he is not seeing God in his true essence. No man can attain unto that light. You can try to think of it like it's a light so bright we can't see through it. Well, okay, that's, that's fair. doesn't say that, but that's okay. If, whatever you've got to say to wrap your mind around the concept. He dwells in a light that we cannot approach. God is sovereign, so paragraph one continues, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, and in every way, infinite, most holy. Well, these are big ones. These are big ones. So we're going to break them down, and this is what the uh, outline does as well. First of all, its extent of who God is in his sovereignty. Well, God is immutable or unchangeable, and that means in his thoughts, his desires, and in all his perfections. Um, God's knowledge, thoughts, plans, characters will remain forever the same. God does not change. He does not change. He is immutable, and you should be very thankful for that characteristic. That means that there's not a moving target for what your goal is. That means that you don't have to wonder if God's going to change his mind and punish everyone. Right? God makes a promise. It's a promise. He doesn't change. God says this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. He doesn't change. You see what I mean? He's immutable. Our salvation as believers is absolutely and eternally secure for a rest upon Christ's dying dying blood, securing our endless and unchanging redemption. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. God is not going to change the standard and say, well, Christ's blood doesn't cover it because you guys really got bad. No. That's what it takes. The penalty's been paid. Amen. The Bible speaks anthropomorphically, explaining God with human traits, Uh, of God changing his mind, or repenting, or regretting. But these are references to actions God takes in a manner that we would understand. They reflect a simple carrying out of God's plan in a way that appears as a change, but in relationship to his character, will, and plans, it is no change. In other words, when God says that he repented God that he did this, it's not because God thought, man, I made a mistake on this, or he, he regretted doing something because he feels like he made the wrong decision. There is no doubt in God. There is no doubt. There is no question. Again, he sees it all simultaneously. It is not a surprise to him that Eve ate the apple. Okay, now it starts to make your head implode. What? What do you mean? It is not a surprise. He created them knowing that Eve and Adam were going to sin. Knew it. New Christ, Jesus, was going to have to come to earth in human form, die on the cross for redemption. Knew it. Before creation. That was the covenant of redemption. When do we believe that happened? Before creation. Why? Because the Bible tells us it happened before creation. Not because we're guessing. Malachi 3.6. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Then some additional verses. Psalm 119.89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. The word is not going to change. Psalm 119:152, concerning thy testimonies, I have known of old that thou hast founded them forever. Psalm 33:11, the counsel of the Lord standeth forever. The thoughts of his heart to all generations. Hebrews 13:8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews 7:23 through 25 and they were truly and they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that comes unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Christ's acts of intercession will never change. All other priests change. How can we know that? Because they die. We are not confessing to Melchizedek and asking him to give us intercession to God, are we? Why? He's dead. Gone. Long time ago. Doesn't exist. Hebrews 9.12, 12, either by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered into once, he entered in once unto the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. In Jeremiah eighteen seven through 9, at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it? If that nation, against whom I have pronounced, turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And of what instant shall I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it? Again, this is a reference to God saying that he will repent for it, but the bottom line is, is that, look, here's what he's saying. If you do what I tell you to do as a nation, I won't punish you. But if you don't do what I say, I'm going to punish you, just like I said it would. Unchanging. That's part of God's characteristics. Let's close in a word of prayer.